Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12 here in a minute. We'll, we'll read that in just a moment. But Dustin has already alluded to um, the number of things that we see in the book of Acts, including the growth, but also the increase in persecution. We've already started to see that a little bit. Um, there's no question as we think about being here in the United States um, that intolerance toward Christian values and to the Christian church is increasing. And I believe it's increasing exponentially here in the United States. Um, just this last week, I saw that Jack Phillips of Masterpiece Cake Shop, you might remember him, um, he's being sued for the fourth time. The first case was in 2012 where a homosexual couple had wanted him to... Um, it was a couple that had gone into his cake shop many times and had purchased cakes from him, but now they wanted him to make a cake to celebrate his or their wedding. And he said, I can't do that, but he recommended another shop down the street that would, but they wouldn't have any of it, so they sued him. He ultimately won that lawsuit. He was sued additional two times, once by the city, and now he's being sued a fourth time. And so this has gone on now for nine years. And it's not because he's refused to provide services, it's because he's refused to endorse what they've wanted him to endorse. We've seen students, teachers, and professors discriminated against because they express their Christian beliefs publicly. Professors and teachers have been removed from those positions simply because of their own beliefs that they've posted on their own personal social media sites. Um, We've seen during this pandemic lockdowns where sometimes in some places the restrictions against churches have been more severe than others. We saw just recently the Supreme Court ruled this week that they could not... Um, that some of the rules against home churches meeting or people just having Bible studies in California, Governor Newsom had banned people just getting together and have Bible studies in their homes. And so the Supreme Court basically ruled five to four, you can't do that. You can't restrict that particular group just because of that particular group. Most recently, we saw this Equality Act passed by the House that threatens to strip away the rights of Christians, Christian businesses, churches in some cases, to practice their faith in their private businesses, in private schools, in nonprofit organizations, and potentially could impact churches. What I mean by that is if this Equality Act actually passes the Senate, it will strip out the religious exemptions that we currently have. Meaning, if I am a business owner... I happen to be a Christian and I don't want to, say, exercise in some activity that promotes those things that are counter to my faith, that would become illegal. I could be charged, not just sued, but possibly charged criminally for doing so. There's another one that's being worked on called the Do No Harm Act, which is very similar, but even takes it a step further. So we're living in a place right now where we see this increase in opposition to the Christian church right here in the United States, a nation that was founded like no other on Christian values and Judeo-Christian values. We're going to see kind of that same pattern here today as we look at Acts chapter 5. It's actually nothing new. It's happened throughout history at different times and in different places. There's going to be three main themes as we go through this chapter today. One of them is the remarkable growth of the church. Dustin's already alluded to that. The second is the confrontation and persecution that results. 
And then lastly, the joy of suffering shame for the name of Christ. So those are our three themes today. Let's look at the first one, the remarkable growth of the church. This is chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. We'll we'll, uh, start reading that in just a second here. But Dustin had, had mentioned the number of times or whatever that Luke has mentioned. There's four times in the book of Acts that Luke actually mentions the growth. Chapter 2, verse 41. I'll just go through these fairly quickly. But chapter 2, verse 41 says, So then, those who received the word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. He jumped down to verse 47 of chapter 2. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. That was likely an additional 5,000 people added to the church. And then chapter 4, verse I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their numbers. And so Luke, early on in his book, talks about this explosive growth of the church. However, what we're going to see today is that there's some resulting persecution. But let's look, first of all, at this growth. The passage today, starting in verse 12, let's read through uh, verse 16. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Now what stands out to me about this passage is the amount of detail that Luke provides for us. As as we just sort of catalog some of these other mentions, there were little one-verse snippets about the church growing. But now Luke sort of gives us a much bigger picture. He kind of gives us the full-color version of what was going on. Notice that he says it was all being done among the people. So these signs and wonders were taking place out in public. They weren't something hidden necessarily. They were out there to where all could see it. It was out among the people. Notice he specifically mentions this place called Solomon's Portico. Now think about this for a moment. The temple was the center of activity for the Jews in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just on the Sabbath. It was throughout, there was, there was markets and stuff around it, and, and it was a place to, to um, spend time. And so during the week, in fact, on a daily basis, they would go up two times a day for prayer. So this was a, a place that was always bustling with activity. This Solomon's portico was actually on the east side of the temple. It kind of overlooked the valley. You can see this beautiful valley as you stood in the portico. And it was huge. It measured 400 feet long. Now imagine that. It's How long is a football field? 300 feet. It went even further. So 400 feet long. It was 23 feet wide. And then on the one section, it had these two columns, or these two rows of 40-foot columns. So they were too deep. And then it was covered with a cedar panel ceiling. I wish I could, maybe Dustin could do this since he's an architect. I don't know how many people that would hold, but 400 feet by 23 feet deep, and then spilling out into the courts, could hold a ton of people. 
Verse 16, chapter, I'm sorry, verse um, 15 and 16 tells us that people were coming from all over, the cities outside of Jerusalem, coming into this portico. In fact, there were so many people, it says, that they lined the streets. They couldn't even get into there because it was so full. And so they would come and they would line all the streets leading up to the temple. And it says that there were so many of them that because they couldn't get there, they would bring their sick out on pallets and on mats and they would put them on the streets so that as the apostles, specifically Peter it mentions here, but it probably refers to all of the apostles, as they would walk to the temple and as they would walk back, they simply hoped that Peter's shadow would fall on them. Now imagine for a moment, we've got John MacArthur, I think, estimated that maybe 30,000 Christians by this point We know from the text, at least, there's probably at least 15,000 or so, and that might simply be referencing only the men. So MacArthur might be right. There could easily have been about 30,000 brand new baby Christians at this time. And on a daily basis, they all headed up to the portico. That was their place to congregate. And while they did that, the apostles are there performing signs and wonders. People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. Can you imagine what that must have been like? We had this phrase we used when we were when I was in Campus Crusade for Christ. The place was on fire. Can you imagine what that must have been like? We can also now see why some of the religious officials were a little bit upset. Somebody had taken over their temple. And it wasn't just the temple or the courts there, it was the stuff outside. It was like a parade, a festival, on a daily basis with people dragging out. The injured and the sick and the lame and the possessed. And these people are seeing these miraculous things take place. And they're being attracted to the church. And again, Luke tells us that multitudes of men and women were constantly, he says. So it wasn't just one here, one there. They were coming to Christ en masse. What an exciting time. So we see at this time that the church is becoming highly visible. It's an entity now that people can see. And considering that most of Jerusalem was Jews, people of faith, but they're seeing this new sect, if you will, this excitement explode from within their own faith. People getting excited about the Lord excited about this Christ, and they're seeing things happen that can truly be only described as the miraculous. In fact, I don't know if there's a passage you already went through or not, where the, where the leaders couldn't deny it. They just, they just, here's what it is, can't deny it. But, just as it's becoming highly visible, it's also becoming a polarizing force meaning not everybody is excited about it Um, you notice if you look at um, verse 13 it says but none of the rest dared to associate with them there was something about this that in some respects caused some fear or at least some trepidation Some were afraid to associate or refusing 
to associate. Doesn't say why, but you might kind of speculate a little bit. Some might have seen how the religious leaders were acting, as we're going to see here in a moment, and that might have made some stand off a little bit. Um, Some might have just been perplexed and puzzled. I mean, seeing God work sometimes can be an overwhelming thing. What do you make of it? I mean, think about this for a moment. The Jews had this amazing history at God acting in some supernatural ways. I mean, we got this Old Testament book filled with God's supernatural acts. Amazing things taking place, right? But he's been almost silent for 400 years between the last prophet and Christ coming. And so, most of these people were used to God sort of just being very silent. Not a whole lot of activity. And all of a sudden, there's stuff happening. And you're going, I wonder if that's God. That can cause some trepidation. And so, in many respects, this explosive growth in the early church was both extremely visible and unidentifiable, but also somewhat polarizing. Now, it does tell us there in verse 13 that the people, meaning those outside, held them in high esteem. Good reputation. Those are good people. I'm not sure if I want to join them. But many did. So it was an interesting time. I wonder, as you look at something like that, masses of people, signs and wonders being performed through the apostles, people getting healed, demons being cast out, people getting saved, thousands of new believers. What's the takeaway for us as we look at that? One thing I see here, and it's something that that Luke continues to remind us of, is that God intended for his church to grow. And he started it with an exclamation point, did he not? It wasn't a slow trickle. It was boom. And we've seen that in history, where there are times where the church grows explosively, and there are times where the church is a little more stagnant. Sometimes we have revival Sometimes we have sort of a a falling away, if you will. People losing their first love. In fact, you get to the book of Revelation, out of the seven churches that Jesus addresses, at least five, maybe six, are chastised for ultimately kind of just getting lame in their faith. In one of the cases, he says, you lost your first love. He threatens them about taking away their lampstand. You know, and that's kind of been the history of the church. Sometimes explosive growth like this, sometimes waning, and then God will bring up a revival. But through all of that, the intent is that the church will grow. Multitudes of believers are always being added to the church, generation after generation after generation. One of my kids, I don't know if it was Katie or Kimberly, asked the other day. Um, we were talking about heaven. This, so many of us, you know, we've always been kind of taught we're going to spend eternity in heaven. Which is not true. We don't spend eternity in heaven because what the book of Revelation tells us is we all come back here. New heavens, new earth. We spend eternity with Jesus Christ. So in many respects, heaven is heaven on earth. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. We spend eternity with Christ here in our new heavens 
and a new earth. And so Katie, I think it was Katie, or it might have been, was it you? How are all those believers going to fit? <laughs> because generation after generation after generation after generation, multitudes of people coming to Christ. Yeah, they'll all fit. Um, I think I mentioned Jackie Chan not too long ago had left his church here, and he's now serving... Or Francis Chan, not Jackie Chan. The comedian, Jackie Chan. One of our favorite... Thank you. Jackie may have. Talk about Francis. Oh, good grief. Oh, I should only go off my notes, right? I really should. Um, so Francis Chan left his church here, but um, I saw an interesting article from him. Whether you love or hate him, in terms of, you know, he's not always the best theologian, but um, you know, he left he left his church here because he began to see a problem with the American church. You know, and he, and he basically essentially said, I'm going to go where people want to hear the gospel. So he did some missionary work and he was floored by watching God work. And he's like, they're practically begging us to share the gospel with them. And he's seen God do some really neat things. And so that's the plan is that the church is supposed to grow. Individual churches may come and go. Um, some will have explosive growth. For the right reasons, some will have explosive growth for the wrong reasons. Some churches will shrink and disappear. God has a tendency to just kind of use, you know. Some will be small churches like us, serving needs and purposes, you know, whatever God's intent and plan is. But overall, God's plan is explosive growth in the universal church. And that's the way it's going to be until Christ returns. Peter tells us that he's not slow about his coming. He just wants everyone. Wants everyone. Not everyone will wants no one to perish, but all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, when we look at this, we see exactly that taking place here, this explosive growth of the church, something God will continue to do at different places at different times throughout history, past, present, and future. Now, with that, unfortunately, comes persecution and confrontation. We're going to see that today. So as the church grew, so did the opposition and persecution by the religious leaders primarily. You'll notice in an effort to stop the church from growing, the high priest and the Sadducees arrest the apostles now and put them in jail. Look at verses 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and they put them in public jail. Now you remember, Jesus' chief adversaries were the religious leaders. Not the people. It was ultimately the religious leaders. The same ones that we have here. Many of these Sadducees were the ones persecuting Christ. The ones that sat on the Sanhedrin. The ones that ultimately sentenced him to death. Now one thing we notice here is that this is the same group that arrested Peter and John just days earlier. And at that time, they had only kind of threatened them a little bit. But with that arrest, their primary guise for arresting them was, oh, they're teaching false doctrine. They're teaching about the resurrection, something the Sadducees didn't agree in. But you notice what they arrest them for now? It has nothing to do with theology. It says they're jealous. Think about that for a moment. You're the religious leaders. You're leading God's people, you know. You got your fancy robes on and the letters after your name, you know, you're an important leader. And everybody's getting excited about something else that's happening at the temple. 
and masses of your people that you used to teach at the synagogues are all flooding to what God is doing somewhere else. They're jealous. It has nothing to do with theology. They're just jealous that people aren't flocking to them, but are flocking to these uneducated fishermen who are able to perform some of the most amazing, miraculous things. And so they're jealous. They're not motivated by anything other than that. And so we're told here that this jealousy drives them to arrest the apostles. Look at verses 19 through 20 with me. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, taking them out, and he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, that's the Sanhedrin, even to the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison, well, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. Again. God had other plans for the apostles. Luke tells us that an angel came to rescue them. The supernatural aspect of this event is provided in the details. Dustin and I had a good time going over this when we were working on this passage. Luke tells us that the angel opened the gates. There was probably multiple sets of gates. There's an inner and an outer gate in most the prisons at that time. When the officers come to retrieve the men the next morning, they find it says the prison locked quite securely. Now, me, I would have left the gates open as a sort of a little tease, little message. Apparently this angel shut the gates behind them, right? They even find the guards still standing there, guarding these doors, apparently completely unaware that they're not guarding anybody because they're already gone. Luke even says that the guards and the religious leaders were greatly perplexed It means they were stupefied by what they discovered. They couldn't figure it out. Doors are locked. Guards still think they're guarding. Guards didn't see anything. How'd these dudes go from the inner prison to now being at the temple preaching? Now, we find that the purpose of this rescue, they were supposed to continue, it's a key word, continue speaking to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Now, some of your Bibles, you may notice, life there is capitalized. The reason for that is, most translators that look at this want to make it clear that it wasn't preaching about this life, but preaching about this life, the gospel, this life in Christ, the things that were happening. And so many of your Bible versions capitalize that word life to separate it from just this life, meaning our lives, but this life, meaning life in Christ, the gospel. And so they were told by this angel, go out and pick up where you left off. Continue preaching the gospel. Now, we're told by, the, by Luke multiple times that what they were all preaching was Christ and the resurrection. 
Simple message. And so the angel says, go back and start preaching again. That was the plan. There's no way that arresting him was going to stand in the way. There was no way that they could get out themselves, so God sent an angel. Took care of it miraculously. Now, what do you expect would happen? Do you think they would all go, oh, we screwed up. Maybe we should join their side. No. They rearrest him. I look at this and I just kind of chuckle because I think, hmm, just get another opportunity to hear the gospel, right? Verses 25 through 32. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back, notice it says, without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. So we'll be a little more careful this time, you know. Let's read on. It says, When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand, or to his right hand, as a prince and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. There's three charges that the Sanhedrin labels against the or fires against these apostles. One of them was violating their order not to teach. You disobeyed us. We told you not to do it. You're doing it anyway. Fulfilling Jerusalem with the gospel, that's a great thing, isn't it? In other words, everybody's hearing. All Jerusalem. You've filmed this place with this strange teaching. And then lastly, and I thought this one is important, they accused him of bringing guilt upon them for killing Jesus. Isn't it interesting when somebody says, you're accusing me of doing something that, that I did. That's the charge. They were guilty of it, but they didn't like being told they were guilty of it. I love Peter's response because it's bold, it's direct. I pull out five things here that Peter sort of shoots back at them, if you will. The first one, right out of the gate, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. In other words, sorry, we can't obey you because we have to obey God. It implies they were standing in opposition to God. That's a bold statement. We've got to obey God, not you. Second thing he says, God did raise Jesus from the dead and you killed him. That was the truth. That becomes important in the book of Acts. In fact, um, I'm working about four weeks ahead and um, just finished up Stephen's martyrdom. And when, when, when Stephen replies to the charges against him, he doesn't defend himself. Instead, he does a history of Israel. And uh, I'm excited to actually teach that because I've never approached it this way before because I've always wondered, why, is it he just, why does he just repeat Israel's history? But his whole 
revision of history is an, is an accusation against religious leaders that they were constantly resisting God sending them a savior. They killed the prophets, and it was no different today. And so it'll be a great passage for us to study. But Peter does just that. He doesn't hold, doesn't pull any punches. You don't like the fact that we've accused you of killing Jesus, but that's the reality of it. You did kill Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Third thing that Peter says is that God has given authority to Jesus. Notice as he says he was exalted to his right hand. That's a position of authority. Notice he also calls him the prince, which is literally leader, if you will, and savior. And that as both prince and savior, he's able to grant repentance and forgiveness to Israel. That's something else that Stephen addresses. That Jesus Christ, as the son of man, which is the prophecy from the book of Daniel, he has the right and the authority to forgive sins, to judge, to grant life, to raise the dead. And Peter basically has, says here the same thing. So his response so far is that we have to obey God rather than you. Jesus was raised from the dead after you killed him. He's been given all authority. He has the right, the authority as prince and savior to grant repentance and forgiveness to Israel. Fourth thing he says is, we are witnesses of these things. We've seen it. Remember when Jesus pulled the apostles aside right before his ascension, he said, you will be my witnesses. Now that wasn't past tense, just the fact that they had seen the resurrection, but a witness going forward. You will witness my resurrection to people. When the apostles then chose Matthias to replace Judas, one of the things they required was this man must be a witness. And again, not just somebody who had seen it, but somebody who would go forward and witness, testify about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Peter does that right here. I'm a witness. We have seen these things. The last thing he does, he says, but there's even a greater witness than us. And that witness, he says, is the Holy Spirit being given to those who obey him. And essentially what he's saying is, that's what you're seeing here. Remember when we started this series, we said that the Holy Spirit is mentioned 55 times in the book of Acts. It's not about the apostles. It's about the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit is doing, but like we've come to know the Holy Spirit, He's kind of the guy that sits in the back and does His thing. You see Him, you notice Him, but He's not the one out front. He's not the one drawing attention to Himself. He quietly indwells us and works within us and and does His thing through the hands of the apostles and through His his, um, church. And so Peter brings it up and he says, the greater witness here is the Holy Spirit being given to those who obey Christ. What's interesting about that is that's specifically what we're told in the Old Testament through Isaiah, that one of the signs is God pouring out His Spirit on those who are not His people, and the rest of the world can then see it. And so here we have the Holy Spirit working through these outcasts, the apostles, rather than through this leadership. And Peter says, that's the witness. And so he responds with these five bold and direct statements. Now, we can almost imagine at this point what would probably be going through the minds of these leaders. 
Um, in fact, when we get to the story of Stephen, we see that they just get so enraged they totally lose their minds and take them out and stone them. In fact, they're acting like children. They're sticking their fingers in their ears and they're going, nah, 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 nah. They don't want to hear it. They don't quite get that to that place here because somebody steps up. There's this man by the name of Gamaliel, all right? And he's going to be able to speak a little bit of wisdom here. He actually warns the religious leaders now to be careful about their response. And this is a wise man. Look at the verses 33, or start with verse 33. It says, But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Now that phrase, cut to the quick, is actually um, kind of this idea of getting right to the heart. It kind of pierces right to the heart. But they're enraged. They want to go out and kill him. Does that sound familiar? Remember the religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus? Jesus even calls them out on it. You kept thinking about killing me. Paraphrase. What, us? No, you're crazy. You're a madman. He's on to us. What do we know about this man that we hear about in verse 34? Gamaliel. Well, He was known for his wisdom and his tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament. Verse 34 tells us, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. But notice it says he was respected by all the people. He was a well-respected Bible teacher, Old Testament scholar. Um, He's only mentioned one other place in the New Testament, and that's by Paul in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, where Paul says that he studied under Gamaliel. Paul got much of his theology and his understanding of the Old Testament from this man. He was the grandson of a very important man named Rabbi Hillel. There are two individuals that come up fairly frequently in Old Testament or in discussions of, of Jewish theology and teaching. One is Shimei and one is Hillel. Hillel lived just prior to Christ. Between him and this other Rabbi Shimei, they formed sort of the basis thinking, philosophy, and understanding the Old Testament for about four to five hundred years, even long after this. So this Hillel was a very important um, teacher in all of Israel. He shaped the way that they thought. Well, this Gamaliel was, I think, a grandson, if I remember right. A grandson or a son. Um, What's interesting about him is that he was somewhat liberal in the way that he applied his theology. Meaning, he was very patient, he wasn't super strict when he came to law. Remember how some within Jewish, Jewish sects were so strict that you couldn't carry your mat more than three feet on a Sunday because it would be work. Well, he was much more liberal. He would apply the law much more liberally. Plus, he was much more open to Gentiles. You know, many of the Jews, they wouldn't you walk down the street, you see a Gentile, you go to the opposite side of the street. He was much more open, which seems, to, which seems to indicate to me that he understood God's plan to incorporate Gentiles into his people, maybe from the promises of Abraham. And part of that might be because of his understanding of the Old Testament. So this, by all intents and purposes, was a well-respected man of wisdom. We don't know where he was in terms of his spiritual condition. It doesn't appear that he accepted Christ. We don't know that he ever did. But he seems to have been a wise Jewish man who was very open-minded. And as he's looking at what's happening here, he warns this council. Look at verse 35 and follow me. He said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, 
Thetis, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the, pre- or in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So he reminds him of two previous individuals that had risen up, gathered a bunch of followers after them. They were ultimately killed, and because of that, their people scattered. He instructs all of these leaders, basically, leave the apostles alone. If what's taking place, he says, is something of their own doing, of men, then they're going to end the same way the others do. Cults pop up, and they disappear, is what he's basically essentially saying here. However, he warns him, he says, but if this is of God, he says basically two things. One, if you look at it there, you go back to the verse 30, 39. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Okay, that's the first thing. You won't be able to stop this. But two, and more so, worse yet, you'll be found to be fighting against God. Now, fortunately, verse 40, the council takes his advice, sort of. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they had to humiliate them one last time. They flogged them. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then finally, they released them. What's our takeaway from this? Well, pretty simple. The church is always going to face persecution. If we're doing our job, we will face persecution. In fact, Jesus himself promised us that. Yikes. I could say warned, promised, Jesus Christ told us, they will hate you because they hate me. Kimberly and I were talking on the way down. She drove to church this morning, get some of her driving time in, and we talked about um, this very thing. Um, We had gone by a church that I've mentioned numerous times. I don't like the name of the church because it implies that just... It's all wonderful. Life is good when you come to Christ. And, you know, that's not what Jesus promised. He promised abundant life, but he also promised persecution and suffering. Now, it doesn't mean that Christian life is a drag. It just means we will suffer for our faith. Sometimes in greater ways than others. Some will face persecution worse than others. Different times and different places. But the reality of it is, we just went through First and Second Peter during our quarantine. And what was all of First Peter about? Suffering for Christ. The church will face persecution. However, second takeaway on this, it isn't going to stop God's church. It didn't stop the apostles. Peter, in the face of this persecution, stood up and said, you're not going to stop us. We will obey God rather than you. The other takeaway from this is that, like he did with the apostles, the Holy Spirit will empower us to stand up. 
Jesus promised. He said, you know what? When the time comes, and you're dragged before your accusers, and they threaten you, he says, don't prepare anything beforehand. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We see that with Peter. I don't think Peter got up with any notes here. The Holy Spirit told him what to say. In fact, when we see Stephen in a few weeks, it specifically tells us that after he had you know, gone through his persecution there and had arrested him, that he was filled with the Spirit and he began to speak. So, church will face opposition, persecution. It will not stop God's church. And the Holy Spirit will empower us to stand up and obey. Let's go on to the very last portion of this. The joy of suffering shame for the name of Jesus. The response of the apostles here is nothing short of remarkable. And I'll be real frank, I don't think it's something they could have done or would have wanted to do apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And I think that's key. Look at verse 41 and 42. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is nuts. This is the second time we know of, there might have been more, we don't know, Luke probably didn't record every event, The second time, these guys have been dragged before the Sanhedrin. The first time, they were simply warned. Now this time, they were beaten and flogged before they were sent out. The next time we see this, someone's going to be killed. The apostles' response to that, though, is twofold. The first response is that they rejoiced. They rejoiced. Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, says James. These men rejoice. Reminds me of Paul and Silas in prison. Hung in prison, probably chained to the wall, and it says they began to sing hymns. Why would they rejoice? This isn't what they signed up for, right? It says they were rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. I remember the apostle Paul. When Jesus knocked him off his horse, what did he tell him? Go on, live your best life now! No, he said, Paul, I'm going to teach you how much you will have to suffer for my namesake. That is not a great poster to recruit, is it? But that was the response. I would have loved to have sat and watched these guys talk. Because it would have been puzzling. But it would have probably motivated us to go, I want to be like that. These men are rejoicing because they were considered worthy enough to suffer for the name of Christ. The second thing we're told is that they kept right on preaching Jesus as the Christ. We told you not to speak in this name ever again. And these guys went out and said, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it again. We're going to keep on doing it. So rather than become discouraged in the face of persecution, they saw it as a badge of honor. And in fact, they became emboldened enough to continue witnessing Christ to the world. What's our takeaway? 
When faced with persecution, we've got three options as far as I can tell. One of them is we can shrink back and shut up. Some choose this option because they're not willing to suffer for Christ. Second option is we can compromise the truth so we can appease our enemies. In other words, we can sort of shut up on certain things, try to make it a little bit easier. Maybe there's things we can do to settle things down and avoid the persecution. We'll just avoid certain topics or certain things. Or maybe we'll do other things to maybe appease our enemies. Some choose this option as an, you know, basically as an effort to limit or reduce persecution. I've mentioned this over the last couple of weeks, some things that are somewhat disheartening. You know, Max Lucado um, apologized to the LGBT community recently for preaching what essentially was sound doctrine. He said it was hurtful to do so. I don't know what's in his heart, but everything as I read his letter to the Episcopal Church that he wrote, there was so much in there that was disheartening because it was essentially, yeah, what I preached was what I believed, and it's what the gospel says, or it's what the Bible says, but it's so hurtful, and I'm so, so, so sorry for hurting you. It was an appeasement to the church that had invited him to come and speak. I'm not trying to disparage him, it's just a struggle. For some reason, he saw fit to do that. I mentioned another Bethel Christian Services, the adoption agency that the Malins used, being challenged because they would refuse to put children into homes that are parented by LGBT, LGBT partners or whatnot. And so they're, they're, they weren't willing to do that. So states have come out to sue them and to challenge them and to take away their charter to be able to do it. And finally what they've done is they've said, well, we'll go ahead and we'll do it now. For whatever reason. To keep the license or maybe for the greater good or whatever it is. But instead of standing and saying, no, we can't do that because it's harmful to those children to do that. They've decided to some, for some reason to compromise so that they can keep doing what they're doing, meaning placing children in Christian homes. Again, not trying to judge or to call them out, but that, that's a compromise of sorts. The most recent thing, I don't know if... Beth Moore recently, this last week. Um, breaks my heart because she grew up in Green Bay. Where I grew up, right? Um... Beth Moore just came out and basically renounced her belief in what we in the church would refer to as complementarianism. What complementarianism is, is it's a way of summarizing what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives. It basically defines men as being created by God in a certain way for certain things and purposes and roles and creating men. The same way. And as part of that, the concept of male headship, which when properly understood means simply that God holds the male responsible for leadership in the family, in the home, and in the church. And that women also play roles in that. In fact, it's really interesting because in, um, if you look at, say, Proverbs 31, for instance, you've got this woman who is working outside the home and supporting the family. She's, in fact, it's a woman who gave those words to Solomon on how to look for a wife that would complement his role as a husband and the dependence. He basically, she basically essentially tells him, you are doomed without a good wife. And then Paul, when he gets into in the book of Ephesians, and he, and he spends more time telling a husband 
how to love his wife like Christ loves the church and to do it sacrificially. And all of that is a description, believe it or not, of submission because the primary word is submit one to another, wives to your husbands by respecting their authority, and husbands submitting to your wives by loving like Christ loves the church. Well, when people misunderstand what the Bible teaches, they do apparently what Beth Moore has done now. Denounce that. Why is she doing that? I suspect it's because that is hated today, and many even in the evangelical church today are condemning that idea. Women ought to be able to pastor churches. Women ought to be able to do A, B, and C. It has nothing to do with abilities or anything else, folks, or intelligence. God simply has ways that he's gifted and he's, he's um, made people and he has certain expectations and it all fits together and it works for his good and for his glory. Well, I look at that and again, I'm not trying to condemn or to point fingers but simply to say it's disheartening to see somebody like, and I've never been a huge fan of Beth Moore because I think her exegesis of scripture at times is really, really wanting. But I wouldn't say she's a false teacher. I haven't seen a whole lot that I would, you know, just questionable interpretation of passages. And there's some issues with her contemplative prayer that she does. And she believes in direct revelation. There's some things like that that I struggle quite a bit with. But again, she's fairly well known. So many women have been moved by her ministry. And now she's basically saying, I'm going to abandon this. And I think it's a compromise so that some of the heat is taken off. Because even, like I said, within the evangelical church, people don't like the idea of complementarianism anymore. It's demeaning to women. It devalues women. That's what they're saying. And so that's one way to respond. So we can shrink back and shut up. We can compromise. The only other option I see is we can rejoice that we share in the sufferings of Christ and continue preaching the truth about him, about what's in here. Jesus warned us that we would be persecuted. Luke chapter 6, verse 22 says that there would also be great reward for that. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way fathers used to treat prophets so what does Jesus tell us to do when you are persecuted leap for joy it's a little twisted we don't quite understand that but we know why he says your reward in heaven is great so that's what we have to look forward to great recruitment poster well it should be we should consider it an honor if and when we're called upon to suffer for the name of Christ Because Jesus says our reward in heaven will be great. So as the church grows, as people come to Christ, opposition will grow. We'll be faced with the challenges of persecution and other things. And it's likely coming to our shores in fast order here. And when the time comes, what will we do? Will we be like the apostles? Rejoice that we are considered worthy enough to suffer for the name of Christ.